Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a horror aficionado and pal to you and me, Kelly McAndy is here. How's it going, Kelly? It's going good. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. So you're a big horror fan. We talk about horror a lot on Twitter, on like our group chats and stuff. How did you get into horror? Is this something that you've been into for a long time? I was kind of a, a late bloomer into it because I was an outdoor kid. So I just kind of hung out outside all the time. And then I went to like a really hipster co-op school. So there wasn't really, mm-hmm. there wasn't really a bunch of like movie <laughs> watching there. Um, so like, it wasn't until like, I started going to public school where like kids were just kind of like, I'm going to ruin her and start her. And like <laughs> <laughs> That public school negative influence. My, my, I went to private school through third grade really? and, and then my, my parents took me out to put me in public school, uh, because, um, I don't even remember why, but they said it was the worst decision <laughs> they ever made. <laughs> what kind of private school did you go to? Was it like a religious um, school or was it like a, a different kind? I don't think so. I think it was just like a boys school. Okay. Um, but not with a religious affiliation. But I don't really remember. And uh, all I remember is that I thought it was really funny that they think the public school were <laughs> But look at me now, Ma. Because mine's fun to look back <laughs> on because it was literally like, did you watch Arrested Development? Yeah. Um, it was like the when maybe you went to that one school and she got like an alligator in math. <laughs> yeah. That was like the kind of school I went to. <laughs> Because it was like, I was in like second grade and we had like the option to go to like the woodworking corner for two, like. Wow. That sounds rad, honestly. Yeah, it was fun, but I'm glad I got out of there in time because I probably would have been a weirdo if I had stayed there. <laughs> Close <laughs> so, like, call. I got, <laughs> I got to public school like in fifth grade and that's when people were like, oh, now we have a bunch of like a stuff for you to watch. Yeah. So like that's when I like started. I remember I had like a new friend and she introduced me to my first horror movie because first she made she invited me over to her house and she made me play like this like horror game on uh, I think it was just on PlayStation. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what it was. I think it was like Silent Hill or something. Oh, hell yeah. Great, great game. If that was, but I remember watching her play that and being terrified because it was like the first time I've seen stuff like that. Mm hmm. And then um, she was like, oh, you're horrified of this, so I'm going to make you watch a movie now. So we Classic. The That's Ring. the move. <laughs> the Ring horrified me. Like, we watched it in the middle of the day in her basement, and I was terrified. Oh, wow. Was it the... Um the Japanese or the American one? No, it was the American one. I actually, I haven't seen either of them, to be honest. Really? Yeah. It's a blind spot for me. I don't know if it's as horrifying as I think it is, but it, it like, it, at, at the time I watched it and there's this, you know, the scene where she comes out of the TV. And yeah. All that, so. so she comes out of the TV. I literally, I had a little TV in my room. I had to move that out of my room. <laughs> and I had, I had like a fly swatter that I kept with me. Like, I don't know what that was going to do, but I was ready. <laughs> it gives you a little more reach. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was horrifying and after that i didn't really watch horror for a while after that <laughs> but then like um probably like late middle school me and my my best friend started like doing this tradition where we would walk to the movie gallery mm-hmm. and then we would literally judge all the movies by their covers because we wow. would rent like the the stupidest shit because like it would be whatever looked okay on the cover we weren't looking for classics or anything right. so it was hit or miss but we we got a few good ones like but there was a there's a lot that we would take home and then it would literally just be like a porno basically <laughs> <laughs> so we'd just be like okay 
this was a miss, but it's yeah. okay. But it was a good tradition. It's sad that scrolling through Netflix is not quite the same as uh, being able to really like go to a go to a store and wander the aisles and everything. Right. I do kind of miss that, to be honest. Me too. Is there a subgenre that you got into in particular? Did the ring spark a love of J-horror? Or, is, uh, <laughs> or, do, or do you just not have a preference? I stay to like psychological thrillers, mm-hmm. kind of. I don't like gore at all. Right. And I don't like like intense like slasher scenes as much, usually, either. So like it's usually like the psychological thrillers and like any uh, ghost stories I like. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm scared of the demons, just like Mike Mitchell. I was raised Catholic, <laughs> so it's it's a little hard. <laughs> sure, hey, it's hard to shake that for sure. <laughs> That's awesome. So the, the I mean today's movie that we're talking about fits right into that. It's a great example of a psychological thriller. It takes a lot of influence from Hitchcock as well. It's uh, the 1990 adaptation of King's 1987 book, Stephen King, for the record, 1987 book. (laughs) Everyone was so confused. Um, what are your thoughts on Stephen King in general? Are you a fan or is this a one-off? So I, I do like Stephen King. I love The Shining a lot. Um, I know that he wasn't a fan of that movie, but I loved it a lot. I didn't actually read most of his books until probably recently, honestly. Hmm. I read Misery for the first time probably like a year ago, and it's an awesome book. Yeah. And also Pet Cemetery is a really good book, but... I do love like his most of his movies are pretty good. He really has an astounding amount of good movies. There are definitely some misses in there, but by and large, you can usually get at least something out of them. Right. I agree. I mean, I've said it before that my dad is huge into Stephen King, so I kind of grew up with this wall of Stephen King books holding like a weird sway over me because I was too scared to read them, but I was so interested in in the covers and reading the the synopsis on the back, and you know they did a great job of of hooking me in to be curious about it, and it really held like a place in my imagination. This wall of books, but the this book Misery was a, a smash hit. Uh, it was actually intended for a release under King's pseudonym, Richard Bachman, named after Bachman Turner Overdrive. And indeed, he was taking care of business, <laughs> using it to avoid oversaturating the market. And he wanted to see if his books were selling because of talent or just the name. And so he quickly released a handful of books under this uh, under Richard Bachman, starting with Rage in 1977. But his identity was discovered relatively quickly by Steve Brown in 1985. I was like, it must have been that Steve connection. <laughs> Can't fool Steve Brown. <laughs> Uh, Steve, Steve Brown was a bookstore clerk in Washington, D.C., and after he noticed that King had dedicated the Bachman books to people close to him, and he pegged some similarities between the writing styles of Stephen King and Richard Bachman, and so he went to find the publisher's records at the Library of Congress, as you do, and uh, it included a document naming King as the author of one of Bachman's books. And so he wrote to Stephen King's publishers with a copy of the documents he uncovered, and he was he asked them what to do. And this kind of cracks me up because, I mean, obviously, he's just checking to see, like, how mad they would be if he went public. But I like the idea of him calling to, like, make sure that they knew that it was Stephen <laughs> King. <laughs> Two weeks later, King telephoned Brown personally and suggested that he write an article about how he discovered the truth and allowed himself to be interviewed. And while he while this was all going down, he was in the middle of writing Misery, which, like I said, he had intended to be released as a Bachman, but got put out as King proper. And King said that Bachman had died from, quote, a cancer of the pseudonym. <laughs> 
Very clever there, Steve. <laughs> King has said that he was pretty miserable at the time that he was writing this. And uh, the vision of Annie Wilkes came to him in a dream. And it does feel extremely personal for an author like King, who already puts a lot of himself into his work, uh, and especially the ones that succeed in the mainstream, like The Shining. But I mean, those t those are the two really that feel like there's just so much of himself in the books. And I think that that's part of what helps to make them connect with people uh, in such a strong way is, you know, it, it, it does feel so personal. Right. And I guess he, he makes them both authors, too, so he doesn't even try to hide it from us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> One of the inspirations was uh, the fan reaction to his book from 1984, The Eyes of the Dragon. Lots of his fans were upset because it's a fantasy book with minimal horror. And so the character of Paul Sheldon being chained to his misery books is a pretty like one-to-one -one for his feelings on being chained to horror <laughs> fiction. And this, this delving into parasocial relationships and the way that people interact with creators that they like is really interesting to me because, first of all, uh, I think that parasocial relationships can be pretty freaky, uh, especially when they're taken to the extreme like in this. But – it's so easy to fall into, especially with podcasts now, because you spend so much time listening to people and you're like, oh, we like the same stuff. We have a similar sense of humor. I bet we right. would be friends. But then in practice, you aren't. And uh, I mean, you look in like Twitter replies <laughs> right. to these people who have large followings and people are joking around with them in like the kind of mean way that friends do because you know, you don't mean it, but it's very rude when you don't actually know them. Right. And when you spend so much time in the world of that person, whether it's listening to them on a podcast or in the world of their books, it can be sometimes hard to differentiate that relationship from a real one. And it's, it's funny that you say that too, because I was actually going to bring up at some point that, that, that exact point that people now, I think if Misery was redone now, it would probably be a podcast that someone got obsessed with and then like captured the podcast host yeah. in their house because th that's exactly it. People get way too comfortable with these people. And it makes sense because like you said, like to them, you're telling them all these stories, but mm -hmm. like to the person that's telling the stories, they have no idea who's listening to them. So right. like they're getting all these like ideas about you and, and they, they think that they know who you are and they don't. And then I, cause I, you definitely get it with, especially Doughboys. I feel like I feel like yeah. people are super mean to both those hosts online. And it's just kind of like, would you say this to someone's face? I don't know. And I was thinking about that. And I was like, if, if there was like a podcast version of Misery, it would be someone kidnapping Nick Weiger and putting him <laughs> in the house. And I could just be someone being like so mad about the Olympics that they're just kind of yeah. like. <laughs> this is it. This is this is their uh, the Doughboys movie. <laughs> Mitch gets his starring so turn good, to rescue honestly. him. <laughs> I would watch that. I would watch that. That would be too. like the best remake of Misery that they could do. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that. Once you started talking about it, it does kind of remind me of that movie Ingrid Goes West. I don't know if you saw that one, but I have never seen that. No, it does. Is that the have, one that have Aubrey Plaza in it. Yeah, her and okay. um, the uh, what's her name, Scarlet Witch, Elizabeth. No, Elizabeth. Oh, Elizabeth Olsen. Yeah, that's it, Elizabeth Olsen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was I'm so close. <laughs> Um, yeah, that movie, it, it's very much about that. She like becomes obsessed with this influencer on Instagram and starts like imitating her and then eventually like goes uh, and meet like stalks her and meets her and uh, 
starts developing it into an actual relationship. But genuinely, like I, I, I started talking about this topic by saying that this does kind of freak me out. And that is one of the few movies that I had to stop halfway because I just got so uncomfortable watching it. that oh. I had to stop. So that's but that's a compliment. Mission accomplished, Ingrid Goes West. <laughs> so <laughs> I need to watch that one. I honestly had no idea that's what it was about. I just saw Ingrid Goes West and was like, that's a girl. That, I thought it was like Fifel Goes West. It's the sequel you know? to Fifel Goes West, yeah. <laughs> just like, yeah, it's it's American Tale, except now she's in the West. Yeah. It's obvious. The, a, a young <laughs> Jewish lady's coming of age. <laughs> But second, in terms of why I think that this delving into parasocial relationships is interesting, is because we get to see both sides of it in this movie. The fanatical person who feels like they're owed something, and the creator looking to express themselves. There are examples in every medium, and every time, when when the audience demands it, it doesn't have the same authenticity uh, or quality to it, because it's just servicing what people want instead of being an actual uh, expression of their creativity. And it's weird, too, because like you can be like, because I have like a tiny podcast that I just do with my brother. That's just like a small thing. And we have people that listen that will like message me and tell me how much they hate my brother. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which is like the it's the the weirdest shit because I'm just kind of like why do you like who's your audience like <laughs> that's my brother. <laughs> First of all, I didn't know anyone listened to this. Second of all, <laughs> um, yeah, that's wild. Uh, so yeah, the fact that you get to see it kind of play out on both uh, both sides because they're in such close quarters for this movie, right. I think, is really interesting. Stephen King was also really going through it at the time because uh, on top of feeling smothered by his fans, there was also an element of inspiration through his drug and alcohol addictions. Uh, he said, take the psychotic nurse in misery, which I wrote when I was having such a tough time with dope. I know what I was writing about. There was never any question. Annie was my drug problem and she was my number one fan. God, she never wanted me to leave. So, you know, pretty dark there. Steve. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to sort of see the the relationship that he's talking about in terms of how he feels kind of chained to it, that that's the thing that brought him the success and how dare you kind of turn your back on it. It's really sad in a way. Yeah. Uh, the book did indeed succeed, though, winning the very first Bram Stoker Award, and it was nominated for the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel and was the fourth ranked on the 1987 bestsellers list. So good job, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> did you say you read this book i read it a couple years ago it's been a little bit okay because i just read it i i told you i read it recently and it yeah. is it's dark like yeah. it's way darker than the movie like yeah. it, i had to like put it down like it several times just because i couldn't read it anymore because there are so many like there's first of all i hate lawnmower scenes in any horror movie or any reading about it where someone like runs someone over with a lawnmower mm -hmm. and that happens in the book version of misery and thankfully it does not happen in the <laughs> movie version because yeah. I probably would not watch it as many times as I have, but it's brutal. Absolutely it is. And I think that that is what makes a good adaptation is sort of making it palatable for a general audience. You know, the the people who like Stephen King's work can sort of self-select into reading those darker books. But for a studio audience, you know, you have to sort of play to the lowest common denominator of who's going to enjoy it. And um I think that this really rides the line of being, I don't even want to say excessive, because I think that it's it's really great, but you know, it could be a lot for 
someone to just walk in off the street and this be like their first horror movie, you know? Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that that is part of what makes it a, a good adaptation because the book is really great, but they are definitely two different different things. So, uh, so that that kind of goes to William Goldman. Yeah, he's he's like a, I remember I read this I not recently, but I remember reading this before where I know there was an argument with like the first director before Rob Reiner maybe. Where they, because in the book, there's a, there's the scene where she hobbles him and makes it so he can't walk anymore. But in the book, she literally cuts off his feet. And right. in the movie, she just kind of hits them with a sledgehammer. And I think it was an argument, like they really wanted it to stay in that they cut the feet off. But finally, like Rob Reiner made it so it was just a hobble or something. Is this sounding familiar to you? Yeah, they, like they, they did go back and forth on that. I. I think that it works. It helps to make it feel a little less bleak, I think, and like <laughs> there like there's space for Paul to come back from. At the end, I feel like the ending is so different if he's like just completely missing a foot as opposed to being like on the rebound. True. So, uh, you know, it it is what it is. Uh, if you want to hear read about his foot getting <laughs> lopped right off, the book is out there. <laughs> So like I said, it was fourth ranked on the 1987 bestsellers list, and one of those sales was to Andrew Scheinman, a producer at Castle Rock, who read it on a plane, loved it, and recommended it to his uh, directing partner, Rob Reiner. Rob had already made a name for himself with both an Emmy-winning actor's role on All in the Family, a show that I enjoyed very much watching with my <laughs> grandparents, um, and as a director who could knock pretty much whatever out of the park. This includes All Before Misery, Spinal Tap, The Princess Bride, Stand By Me, and When Harry Met Sally. And after Misery, he would go on to uh, get a Best Picture nomination for A Few Good Men. So he's really all over the map in terms of uh, the movies that he makes. King was initially reluctant to sell the rights because he was kind of skeptical that a Hollywood studio would be able to make an uh, an adaptation that was faithful enough uh, to his vision. But after Reiner did such a great job with Stand By Me, he agreed to sell Misery to Reiner. He, that was the provision was that it had to be him. People weren't sure that he was right for it, though, when they were heading into production because his background was – I mean, there was a comedic element to a lot of the stuff that had happened before. And he responded to this criticism saying, like, it's really important for me to find my own way into the film. And as you'll see, the movie is really about a man who is trapped by his own success and desperately trying to break out and establish himself in a different way. I felt very much those feelings when I finished All in the Family. So there is a really interesting correlation between not only Stephen King, the author, and Paul Sheldon, but uh, Rob Reiner, the director, and Paul Sheldon uh, that I, I think really also helps bring a sense of realness and authenticity. And so Reiner asked William Goldman to adapt it into a screenplay. And Goldman, you may know from his Oscar-winning screenplays for both uh, Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid and All the President's Men, as well as writing the novel and screenplays for Marathon Man and The Princess Bride. So that's where he knew Reiner is from working on The Princess Bride. And there is a few other changes that we can talk about as they come up so that we don't spoil things too far in advance. But by and large, the broad strokes of the movie are pretty similar uh, to the book. So uh, so that's nice. Um, but one of the things I find so interesting about this movie is how stripped down it is. There's only a handful of characters and even less settings, which means that everything is really magnified. Uh, you spend so much time in Annie's house that you really are like looking around and absorbing the production design and how it all functions as an extension of her character. And the actors really have to shoulder a lot of the load because one bad performance will sink a movie like this. So casting is really huge. 
Exactly. And I think the the best thing about Kathy Bates in that role is that I don't even usually notice that I'm watching two people because she she has like the range to like change all those emotions and all right. those moods. And she goes through so many throughout the whole movie that it's amazing. Absolutely. Like it's never boring to just watch two characters and you kind of forget that you are. Yeah. Because she's so good at that. Exactly. The the emotional mood swings that she has really feel like they're different people in a way that does sort of keep you on edge. Really great. Because I, I think at this point, she was pretty fairly unknown at this point, right? Yeah, she had been in very, very minor roles in a few things, but she was basically an unknown for this. So okay. what a, I mean, what a breakthrough breakthrough performance. Yeah, she was amazing. The part of Paul Sheldon, our beleaguered protagonist, was originally offered to William Hurt, not once but twice, and then Kevin Kline, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfuss, Gene Hackman, and Robert Redford. (laughs) Damn, all those people said no? They all turned it down. (laughs) And (laughs) imagining these different actors in this role feels like it's so dramatically changes the movie. Absolutely. If Paul Sheldon were not James Caan, who from that list do you think uh, would have done a good job with it? Do you need, uh, I can read the list. Do you, yeah. Do you mind repeating the list to me? Sure. So you got William Hurt, Kevin Klein, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfus, Gene Hackman, and Robert Redford. Damn, that's a good list. So first of all, I would have loved my my sassy Kevin Klein to be Paul Sheldon. <laughs> I can only imagine what he would be like in that role because he he would be sarcastic and sassy. It would be it would change yeah. the whole movie, but I think I would love it. Yeah, I, I he seems like a lot of fun for it. I think that might have brought a little more of that comedy that Reiner was known for. Yeah. To me, I think uh, I think Hackman could do it. That would be good. I think he would be fun. Uh, although seeing Richard Dreyfuss's name on that list got me thinking. The other Jawsman, my dude Roy Scheider, he'd have been great in there too. I think he has a very similar vibe to uh, James Caan for my mind. So. <laughs> he, he does, yeah. I feel like Richard Dreyfuss would definitely bring the same, like, that the anger that James Caan brings, I guess. Because yeah. he's he's not, like, overly emotional. He's more, like, he's it more simmers. muted. Yeah. But it's more, it's very smug and, like, angry. But you yeah. can tell, like, he's, like, somebody that, like, you cut in line and he doesn't want to tell <laughs> you specifically that you did. But he yeah. wants to make you feel like you he, you know that he did. Like, he knows yeah. that you know that you did. And he and takes so, it out like, on people for the whole day. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I feel like that's the energy that James Conn brings. And then like, I I feel like Richard Dreyfuss to bring that same energy. I'm I'm going back to Kevin Klein though, because I'm just imagining that movie and I fucking love it. Oh yeah. (laughs) But I'm just thinking of him as his like a a fish called Wanda role where he's just. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. What a movie. I'm greenlighting this immediately. Oh, this is derailing me. I absolutely love Kevin Klein as this role. And now this is my whole movie. (laughs) You'll never watch it the same way. (laughs) I'm like, uh, this could have been so different. Can I get Kevin Klein on the phone and just get him in here? I love Kevin Klein so much. I'm surprised he's even on that list because he doesn't match everybody else at all. (laughs) It's such a weird choice. (laughs) Um, but <laughs> they're just kind of like let's just offer it to him real quick and we'll just yeah. see what he says we'll just keep going <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i love it yeah that's really great uh warren Beatty actually was interested in the role and he, he wanted to turn paul into a more active character though and 
on top of that, he had to drop out when post-production um, of Dick Tracy went long. So oh, yeah. eventually, James Caan took the role, and I think, you know, they took the long and winding road, but it works perfectly. Khan, I think, is the perfect blend of that sort of patronizing tone that you were talking about. He's cynical, but he still has a little sympathy to him. Yeah. And like I don't know. I I personally, I have... I've only seen James Caan probably in two things. I've seen him in this, and I know him from Honeymoon in Vegas. So those are the two <laughs> James Caan movies that I know. You didn't see Elf? Oh, I did see Elf. I'm sorry. I, I didn't even think of him as in Elf, so... I think I feel um, like that's the same character. I feel like after it pretty much is. Yeah, <laughs> he, he got better. He remarried, and, uh, <laughs> and he had a little elf boy. <laughs> In Elf, he's just like Annie. God damn it! <laughs> but like, I feel like I take a lot from Honeymoon in Vegas. That I just I hated him in that movie so much mm-hmm. that it's it's I love Misery so much, and I do sympathize with James Caan in that movie. But it's like I take that disdain from James Caan from Honeymoon in Vegas and I bring it over and I'm just kind of like, I don't I'm not on Annie's side per se, but I'm just kind of like, I'm not really rooting for either of these characters. I'm just kind of like, I'm here to watch the drama unfold. If he dies, he dies. (laughs) As they said in Rocky (laughs) Four. Khan said that he was attracted by how Sheldon was a role unlike any of his other roles and that being a totally reactionary character is really much tougher because everything that his character does is completely reliant on Kathy Bates's performance as Annie. And having that sort of power dynamic can really be tough. And uh, uh, people, you know, there's some suspicion that because Annie Wilkes sort of dominates the movie so much that some of the names on that list might have felt like they would have been emasculated by taking this role. And um, I don't think that that's the case. I think that they both uh, are really doing exactly what the performance demands. I feel like it's pretty... I never feel like Kathy Bates is taking the lead, I guess. I always Mm. felt like it was very 50-50 because Kathy Bates definitely did her part, but then like James Caan... He could play wounded so fucking well because, like, I when he like fell off the bed and like was like grabbing his legs, I believed it. I was like, this guy is in pain, (laughs) and so like I never felt like I never felt like he was emasculated by taking that role. So that's that's funny that that would be like a thing. It's just weird to think that like oh because a woman has like a great role in a movie, like we have to be like oh then the man has to be emasculated because of it. Yeah. But Reiner is, he gives Goldman the credit entirely for suggesting the then unknown Kathy Bates to play Annie Wilkes, who, like you say, is doing exactly what she needs to. She's the, she's the obsessive fan of Paul. And boy, oh boy, does she earn the Oscar that she got for this. Like I said, it's an incredible breakout role. Annie is a really interesting character, too, uh, especially because she's kind of viewed as a case study in borderline personality disorder. And she's written in a way, that feels grounded and within reason, and that creates a little sympathy for her. There, there are nine criteria for BPD that I'll read off here, and I, I'm not going to say the examples explicitly from within the movie, so I don't completely ruin the path of the story, but people will be able to recognize them as they come up, I'm sure. Uh, they are fear of abandonment, unstable relationships, unclear or shifting self-image, impulsive self-destructive behavior, self-harm, extreme emotional swings, chronic feelings of emptiness, explosive anger, and feeling suspicious or out of touch with reality. And I mean, this really fits her to a T. 
The whole movie cost $20 million to make, and it opened up on November 30th, the day that this releases. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Really coincidental. I did not plan that at all. It just happened to work out that way. This is um, the 40th anniversary. No, 30th anniversary. That's how time works. 30th anniversary. of Misery will be uh, November 30th. And it earned $10 million its opening weekend, opened up behind Home Alone, but it went on to gross an extremely respectable $61 million. Critical reception was also pretty positive, especially for Bates' performance, like I said. And even King himself likes this one. And (laughs) that's not always (laughs) the case. Um, But he, so he called it one of his top 10 adaptations, which doesn't sound like much of a compliment. (laughs) Until you realize that there are 61 film adaptations of his work (laughs) already made or currently in production, including 17 that had already come out by the time Misery was released. There are also 37 TV shows or miniseries adaptations, eight official stage productions, including Carrie, which I saw and quite enjoyed, and 57 derivative works based off his catalog, (laughs) but not a direct adaptation like Pet Cemetery 2. So... (laughs) Top 10, pretty damn fucking good. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Uh, getting back into the actual movie, we're getting into the plot now. It's a great opening shot right away. Mm-hmm. People who listen to the show know this is super important to me. And it's a super tight close up on a cigarette and a match, which is some nice foreshadowing. And you just hear the clicking of the typewriter in the background. And it continues with these close-ups, an empty champagne flute, the bottle of Dom P, the page in the typewriter itself. And I just love the feeling that it, that it provides uh, jumping into it. It feels really intense, but also it feels like he's nearing completion of this book. Like you, you get that feeling of reaching the finish line kind of just from these tight close-ups. Uh, and eventually we see it pans out a little bit. We see Paul Sheldon. It's James Kahn. Uh, he's the famous author of a series of Victorian romance novels featuring a character named Misery Chastain. Uh, unfortunately, he now hates writing these. So he wants to focus on more serious stories. He's not taken seriously. He's an artist. <laughs> and we've just seen him in this uh, these tight close-ups finish an untitled manuscript for a new novel that he hopes will launch his post-misery career. And he lights the cigarette, he pours the bubbly, and he celebrates. <laughs> He's got Oscar fever. Pours, him, pours me some bubbly. He leaves the lodge that he was writing in, in Silver Creek, Colorado, to head home to New York City with his completed manuscript, Absolutely gorgeous scenery as he's driving around. These snow-capped mountains lined with evergreens. Just really stunning. Unfortunately, the snow picks up and visibility sucks. And one little character thing that I like that they show is him pulling the briefcase with the manuscript in it, like, a little closer to him on the seat. Like, that's going to protect it. It's just a fun... Like, my a, manuscript. My goodness. Gravity. <laughs> But unfortunately, yeah, it becomes a full-on blizzard as he's driving around, and his car goes off the road. And this is a really great action set piece uh, in a movie that isn't. I mean, when you when you think of it, you think of him lying there in bed. But they really, I think, shot the hell out of this thing. Um, they did. The yeah, the car is flipping and sliding, and the camera is flipping around too. It's really great stuff. And they used a setup involving nine cameras, quote six or seven of which actually function. <laughs> he said we knew we weren't going to be able to throw a car off a cliff too many times (laughs) said reiner (laughs) 
Um, really, that's, just that line just really cracked me up. But the final credit, directed by Rob Reiner, appears over the car. It's deathly still. The wind is howling. The snow is coming down heavy. Really just an, uh, an amazing opening sequence. It rules. The only thing that I hate is the, the music in this whole fucking movie. <laughs> because I feel like it could have been so intense if they just yeah. used a different score. <laughs> but like, you're right. The, all of the visuals were amazing. And then like, they have like this music that like sounds like a woman is like rushing to go shopping for like Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> That's that elf connection. That's what I'm saying. This is This is him. Oh my God! He works in publishing in Elf. <laughs> he does. He's the same goddamn man. It's this Paul is just Sheldon. <laughs> Holy crap! We're breaking this case wide open, Kelly. That's that's the only reason they couldn't cut off his leg. They're like, okay, if we cut off his foot, he can't really do his Elf thing later. So <laughs> wow. that's a big that's a big selling point for us and Will Ferrell, who's probably a young boy. <laughs> <laughs> he's all over it. A, a true savant, um, <laughs> but. They flash back, flashback too. He's in the office of his agent and they sort of sum up his feelings about misery. He doesn't feel like it's literature and he doesn't <laughs> want to be stuck writing her for the rest of his life. So he's killing her off in one last book, despite the wealth it's brought him. <laughs> it's just like, they're like, all right, we got to get this exposition out of the way. <laughs> Stick it in here. It's fine. <laughs> um, and then they cut back to the crash. And I think having this flashback in there does help to cut out some of the other uninteresting stuff of like, how did Kathy Bates find him or get out there or anything? Um, right. And so having that in there, we can just cut right back and uh, she's breaking him out of the car and uh, throwing him over her shoulders like a, like a fire person. <laughs> and uh, she hustles and saves his ass. And she brings him to her extremely isolated home where Paul finally wakes up two days later and he finds himself bedridden with broken legs and a dislocated shoulder. And the legs are grody looking. <laughs> great effect. Great makeup work there, to be honest. Yeah, like, I think really gross. I read up on that because I was just super interested because I love how they do like stuff like that. But I think it, it was gelatin that they made like all over his legs and they had to like stick his legs inside of them. I, I mean, love still, that stuff. Great so prop work, though. <laughs> It, it, it did. It looked real. Like I can barely look at it when I look at it. Like yeah. it's, it's amazing. Yeah, exactly. You kind of like look at it through like the sides of your eyes because you're too busy. Like, oh, that probably didn't record at all because I was facing it a completely different way. But whatever. <laughs> you're looking at it out of the side of your eyes. Um, and I love the first look at her face. It's at this Dutch angle, which suggests right away that she's maybe a little off kilter herself. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's pretty on the nose, but I think it works. Um, and you know, she's, she starts off right away telling him about how, uh, she's Paul's number one fan. And she explains his condition saying that the phone lines are down, but when the roads clear, she'll take him to a hospital. He's so fucking innocent. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I trusted her. <laughs> Look how they massacred my boy. <laughs> Another James Conn performance. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's all over the damn place. She also starts feeding him painkillers, though. And in the book, this is another one of the changes. Uh, Paul has a history of substance abuse, but had recently kicked the habit. Uh, in the movie, he does, he was addicted to cigarettes. But between the captivity and being fed opiates from uh, this, this 
uh, this nurse, because she is a nurse, he relapses, which makes the eventual hoarding of them that much more challenge- challenging and meaningful, but is definitely uh, darker than just being a smoker. <laughs> <laughs> His agent is nervous about not hearing from him and calls the local sheriff to investigate. And he's great. It's Richard Farnsworth as Buster. He says that he'll keep his ear to the ground. It would have been so easy to have the sheriff be just another bland whatever who expositions his way to finding them. But he is so great. And in fact, in the book, he kind of is that, where he's a lot less involved and and less interesting. But in the movie, they give him more of these deductive skills and more drive towards finding Sheldon. And I think that is representative of what makes this movie so good, is you take a great source material and you elevate it in a way that uh, I I think is is super impressive. I think that Richard Farnsworth is so great in it. He's so, the relationship he has with his wife is so cute in this. Um, (laughs) He's just a cute little old man. They're so Um, cute. I I love it. He's really fantastic in this. I love that scene where they're like driving in the car and she like puts his hand on his leg and he's like, you're my deputy, you know, I'm the sheriff (laughs) right now. (laughs) Yeah. She wants to, she's like, I'd rather be under the covers right now. (laughs) Damn. Ladies, Randy, she's trying to trying to take you home, Sheriff. I know, right? So horned up, but it's also so cute. <laughs> yeah. Back at Paul and Annie, it cuts to her holding a razor to his throat to shave. And it's so fascinating how they sort of capture this threatening aura, despite the fact that she's been nothing but nice so far. Right. It's really, it's really impressive. I think that a lot of that has to do with her performance here, but also the cinematography and the way that she's being shot. And- Grateful to his savior and at her request, uh, Paul lets Annie read his new manuscript. I I like this line that he he has here about how he's very selective uh, and it's only like his agent, his family, and uh, people who save his life or whatever it is. (laughs) It's a, it's a cute little line, but yeah, it's so weird because it's like you're right. We don't have a reason to suspect Annie at this point, even though like we know what's going to happen because we we're, we're aware we're watching a horror movie. Yeah, but it's like we have no reason to suspect Annie, and so far she's been lovely. So it's just yeah. kind of like why why do we hate Annie? <laughs> <laughs> this woman yeah. that pulled Paul Sheldon out of a car. Yeah, she did save his ass. So. <laughs> But she comes in later and she's feeding him and and she tells him that she doesn't like the cursing in the new book. And he sort of pushes back a little bit, but she freaks out. Her little rant here, it escalates, but it starts off really funny about uh, get me some of that bitchin' cow corn or whatever. It's very funny, but she spills some soup on the bed and blames him. Look what you made me do. And then... She immediately backs down and apologizes, but this is where you start to start to see this uh, aspect of having like two different people there right. and these emotion, uh, these mood swings that are really just wild. Paul is finally starting to realize that she might not be uh, entirely uh, level, especially when she confesses her love to him, his creativity. That's all she meant. Like, obviously, we're just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> And this is the next scene is when Buster is driving with his deputy, who is also his wife. And like we said, they have a very cute relationship, but uh, they stop suddenly when he sees a broken tree and he explores a little bit, but he doesn't see anything and he heads back. And man, this camera movement is just so tragic, but so great where he like turns around the camera pans like a foot over (laughs) and it reveals the car just covered by a snowbank (laughs) so close to him. Your heart just drops. Uh, it's really effective, I think, in terms of uh, sim- simple camera movement really conveying a lot of story. Annie pokes her head back into the room, and she reveals several things. 
First, that she went into town and got the newest misery book, baby. Uh, second, <laughs> that she <laughs> that she called the head orthopedic surgeon, who said that he's fine there as long as there's no infection, and they'll send they'll send an ambulance when the road is clear. And third, that she called his agent to say he's okay, but that if he wants to talk to his daughter because it's her birthday, uh, he'll have to wait until tomorrow. A little bit later, she also introduces him to her cute little brown pig, Misery. And uh, she she tells him that she's on page 300, and the only two divine things in the world are this book and the Sistine Chapel, this new Misery book. And, you know, talk about disconnected from reality. <laughs> like... <laughs> It really starts to crystallize the obsession that she has with this work and with Paul himself. I guess what cracks me up just initially is just thinking of, because the kind of books that he writes aren't the kind of books, it's not like Stephen King himself where someone would be obsessed with Stephen King. It's more like a James Patterson kind of thing where he's like writing, or like, what's that other guy that writes like romance novels? I think James Patterson writes like political stuff. But it's just kind of like, those are the kind of guys that you don't know what they look like until someone posts on Twitter. Like, this is what this guy looks like, you know? Yeah. It it, it is interesting, though, that there is sort of still that pulpy element to it, where a lot of people look down on Stephen King horror as kind of like trashy and, uh, you know, kind of, like I said, lowest common denominator. I don't agree, but that is the view. I've never heard that. That's funny to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... Times were different back then, and <laughs> horror did, did not uh, was not quite as mainstream as it is now. And uh, you know, people had a really low opinion of of horror and sort of oh, the satanic panic and everything. <laughs> and so that pulpiness of horror fiction and the pulpiness of like these romance novels. Um, I think do have kind of an interesting correlation to each other. <laughs> it just makes me laugh because like the only other man that she men- mentions is Liberace. And so yeah. it's like, I love two men. I love James Patterson and I love like Dave Grohl. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, uh, and she, she can at least appreciate Michelangelo, <laughs> but it's the middle of the night when she finishes the book and we just see Paul sleeping and I I love the way that they handle this, where it's all in the sound design, where you hear you just hear the door open and then slam shut, and that's what wakes him up. And it cuts to her in the doorway, and it's this incredible shot, low angle, conveys the power dynamic, really makes her intimidating, and it's it just looks so good. And and then the performance kicks in, and she starts freaking the hell out about Misery's death, <laughs> looking like she's gonna slam a table like an end table across his damn face. <laughs> You do not piss off her. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. And I mean, like we said, she carried him all the way to her house. You know, right. you know she's not exactly uh, a weakling here. And <laughs> she slams the friggin' table against the wall and says, he's nothing but another lying old dirty birdie. <laughs> it's funny how she still manages to feel intimidating, despite the fact that she is saying things like dirty birdie. <laughs> It's amazing that that is Kathy Bates, just her whole like uh, someone did a parody of her, like going into a Barnes and Noble and being mad that they don't have a book. Yeah. And she was like doing that whole impression. It's just kind of like it's amazing that that is intimidating. Just yeah. The, the, the cock-a-doody. <laughs> I love it it's so really much. Great. It's really great. <laughs> but basically, she says that uh, all that was a lie. That she said earlier, and ain't nobody know where you are, Paul Sheldon. (laughs) 
boy, what a reveal. Yeah, now we're entering James Caan finally realizing that he's actually in fucking trouble. Yeah, he's like, oh, she, she locks him in the room and then drives off to God knows where. And Paul is like, <laughs> fuck, I gotta make moves here. <laughs> it makes me laugh. It's in like the middle of the night. Where the fuck is she going? <laughs> Who the hell knows? Who knows? It's just kind of like... I, I understand, like, later she goes and, like, buys paper and all that, but it's just kind of like, it's the middle of the night, and they're like, where yeah. else does Annie Wilkes have to go? I don't know. I, I kind of wonder if she's, like, just going for a drive to clear her head or something, because she, <laughs> she does walk out later into the rain, and she just kind of, like, goes off. So I, I yeah. that's kind of how I interpret it, but it is really bizarre when you're just like, <laughs> what the hell is happening? <laughs> Just kind of like, here's your chance, James Caan. You can do whatever you want for a few minutes because I'm on a drive. That's right. And he, <laughs> he takes his chance, but he lunges himself out of bed and he is just in agony from those broken legs. And boy, oh boy. I mean, she mentions that it's a compound fracture in two different places. Like, uh, they're just really shattered. And he really conveys it well. He sells this agony in such a great oh, way. Yeah. I believe it. Like, I can't even look at him because I believe it so much. Like, I'm just like, my legs hurt when I look at James Caan pretending that his legs hurt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And he falls asleep there on the the ground because obviously he's not getting back up onto the bed. (laughs) But the next morning, Annie is back to her quote unquote pleasant self. (laughs) And she helps Paul back into bed before forcing him to burn his new manuscript with some encouragement from God. And, um, you know, this is why you need word processors, folks. <laughs> I do laugh my ass off when she puts way too much lighter fluid on and it sparks this huge inferno and she's just <laughs> running around screaming, heavens to Betsy, oh my goodness. <laughs> like, it's such a fun moment that it kind of makes you be like, well, maybe that was just an overreaction last night. Like, <laughs> Uh, it, it's really it's so funny but and this is also the part that scares me the most because it's the part where, like you said she mentions this being um uh, like a, almost a mission from god from her to paul sheldon yeah and that kind of like puts her in the place of like this like moral superiority right that she's just kind of like i know exactly what i'm doing and like nothing i'm doing is wrong because i have god on my side basically right which is which is a it's kind of a stance that most like evangelical christians kind of take and it's horrifying to me yeah because i feel like people i feel like people like her and like her character in this movie are like, um, I'm I'm a Christian woman. That's all I have to say to you to say why I'm saying the rest of the things. And like human decency does not mean anything after this because God is on my side. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, there, there is absolutely sort of an underlying current of moral superiority that really adds an edge to it in terms of being like, I'm not going to be able to get through to this person. Exactly. I'm not going to be able to convince them to let me go. That's when it's horrifying because you're just kind of like once they once you're clear that it's not it's them saying like this isn't my thoughts anymore it's God's thoughts yeah like cool. it's scary yeah because like I I even I grew up with like an evangelical like best friend and like I remember like I said I was raised Catholic so like I remember when my grandfather passed away. And like she literally gave me a note that said, um, oh "You." <laughs> she, so my grandpa just passed away. She gave me a note that said, "Your grandpa is in hell, but you don't have to be." <laughs> oh my god! I saw it coming, and it still hurt. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh 
what the shit? <laughs> that is so fucked up. But like her mom told her to give me that flyer. So it's like, it's not only that I was a third grader, it's that like a 40 year old woman was like, yeah, give her that flyer. <laughs> wow. Wow. So like that's, that's what wild. horrifies me about like this whole concept of like the the whole like evangelical Christian like, oh yeah, I'm saved. So like God told me to do this and now I'm right no matter what. Yeah. Absolutely. Um I'm really looking forward to seeing Saint Maud, which really feels like uh, <laughs> it's capturing a lot of that same sort of thing. So we'll see. We'll see. But it is absolutely <laughs> terrifying. But yeah, I feel like she's definitely that character because she she brings it up like three or four times where she says mm -hmm. like this is me like god talking through me to tell you that you need to do this because it's it's the the, the right moral path for you to do this right even the fact that she was just she didn't like his new book because of the profanity in it like right. you know, something as simple as that to her is uh, is enough to uh ruin this book for uh from her favorite author so uh, it, it definitely grounds her in real life because we are able to connect her to these people that we actually know. Um, it does help to really make it more terrifying. Right. Paul is clearly devastated at having to burn his book. <laughs> like the look <laughs> on his face. It's, it's, it's sad, but it's also very funny. Uh, he's so upset. And when she gives him his painkiller, he stashes them in the bed to start stockpiling them and poison her eventually. And the next day, she gets him into a wheelchair and reveals his surprise uh, that she promises him. An electric razor, a 50-pound typewriter that she got a great deal on because it's missing the N. <laughs> Fun fact, the N is one of the most used letters in the English <laughs> alphabet. And also some very expensive paper. But not his paper. Not his paper, which will come into play in mere moments. It turns out that she's insisting that he write a new novel titled Misery's Return, in which he brings the character back to life. And this is where a lot of that you can get back to what you're good at language comes through that King was really feeling cornered by. Um, it's really start of, uh, sort of becoming... Um, just text instead of subtext at this point. Paul agrees to do it, believing that Annie might kill him, much like King's fans might have tried to kill his career, but he also manages to get her to leave again by saying that she got paper that he can't work on. Clever boy. The way that she swings back and forth, like we said, is really wild, and this scene is another great example of it, and boy do I flinch when she slams that box of paper on his legs. <laughs> the hobbling scene that we mentioned earlier gets a lot of sort of the buzz about this movie but in in terms of things that seem very painful this is uh, certainly up there as well while she's gone he manages to grab a hair clip that she dropped and didn't notice and he, he fashions it into a makeshift key to unlock the door to his room and during his exploration, he discovers that the front door is locked for real, so he can't get out through there. But uh, also, that would definitely result in his death if he just like wandered out into the cold. Exactly. Air. I'm just like, I'm wondering what his end game was with that, because I'm just like, he gets out, sure, but then he's just strolling down the street in a wheelchair. He like, the moment. He's, he's he wasn't, he was him. not thinking that far ahead. <laughs> <laughs> he's just trying to get out of there. But um, yeah, that would have absolutely killed him. Uh, he finds a phone, too, but psych, <laughs> there's nothing inside it, just a shell. <laughs> really, like, this is one of the moments where you're like, oh, wow, she's really far gone. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't even need her own phone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
And oh man, when he knocks over the penguin, I gasp every time. Every single time I see this movie, I gasp. But when he catches it and he puts it back backwards, you're just like, oh man, you see it coming. It's these great breadcrumbs that they let you right. sort of put together. I really love the way that they handle that. I know, but I know it's going to be supposed to be facing due south later. Yep. So. yep. Oh man. <laughs> and it's sort of it's such a great setup that you know is going to pay off. And so the whole time you're like, Oh man, when is this going to come back into play? Cause it, it, I mean, they wouldn't show it happening right. uh, so deliberately if it wasn't going to come back. And, and yeah, it does sort of set this countdown in your head of like, Oh man, when is she going to notice? When's it going to come back? Um, just really great. Um, and it, sh- it stresses me the fuck out when he's out there. Cause I'm yeah. like, I don't know when she's coming back. Like even no matter how many times I've seen this, I'm just kind of like, you need to get back in your room. Yeah, <laughs> You forget how long the, like the scene is. And you're like, Oh man, is she about to come back right now? Like right. hurry up, hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> he grabs a bunch more painkillers and uh, he checks the back door. It doesn't work for him either. And so he retreats to his room again after hearing her drive up and he gets away with it for now. <laughs> <laughs> Back outside, the car has been found as winter starts to fade away and the snow starts to melt. And the conference is like the press conference is so grimly funny when he's like, he's dead for sure. And honestly, the animals probably got him. (laughs) Such a funny moment. And like, what a weird thing to say to the press conference of this beloved author. Uh, but it's great. You know, Buster, the sheriff, is sure that someone pulled him out, though. He doesn't buy this official story because he goes down, he sees the dents from the crowbar. He's he's on to her. He's on to her. Hey, this is good. this guy's the only good detective in all of Colorado. Everyone else That's is right. just a fucking idiot. That's right. They're working with like the state police and everything, and uh, he's the only one, it turns out. There's kind of like, they looked at that scene, they're like, yeah, this is what happened. <laughs> Probably a bear. We're done here. <laughs> there, Paul gets a false start on his book there, but he finally gets a beginning that not only satisfies her, but puts her into joyous rapture, uh, spinning around the room, screaming about misery being alive. Misery's alive. Uh, And Paul asks her to have dinner with him to celebrate, but also really to put his plan into action. He spikes her wine with the crushed painkillers, but classic. She accidentally knocks over the glass. I got to say real quick, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but she did look super cute for this oh, like, yeah. part of the movie. She oh, got yeah. dressed up and ready for James Con, and I think she looked adorable. And I wish that it could have ended differently, <laughs> even though I knew it didn't. But like, I was just kind of like, oh. Yeah, in another timeline. <laughs> This this did become she, like, a rom hair. She she had makeup on. She looked cute. It she was sure great. did. Good for you, Kathy. <laughs> uh, you looked great. She's and she's she's really eager too. Like she's so excited. She's like, if you told me I'd be having candlelit dinner with my with Paul Sheldon, right. I'd have asked uh, you to tell me which leg you're pulling or whatever. I don't know. It breaks I botched my heart. It, but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, she knocks over the glass and truly sort of a roller coaster of emotion as you go through this scene. And he's like just like staring at it. And suddenly his toast of to misery really starts to take on another meaning. Um, (laughs) Just really. It's a great, great scene. As the book nears completion, Annie is struck by a serious bout of the blues. Um, This scene, I mean... Kathy Bates is I I don't know how many times we can say Kathy Bates is so good but <laughs> she's she's already mentioned that sometimes her thinking gets foggy and it's on clear display here while she mourns the inevitable loss of Paul and she just like whips out a gun implies she's had suicidal thoughts before and she's having them now again before just kind of wandering out into the rain 
And this sort of downbeat performance that she's giving here, sort of like staring off into the distance the whole time, it's so the opposite of the frenetic energy that she's bringing in the mania moments. But it's what helps to make them feel like there's a huge gulf. You know, it, right. it makes them feel even more pronounced. It's it's just really great. It really, it genuinely freaks me out when she like comes in and says that the, the rain is really getting to her. Yeah. And she's never, like she hates the rain and always brings her down. Like that scene freaks me out when she comes in and says that. Because it's just kind of like, you can feel Paul Sheldon like feeling like, oh, I don't know what to do at this point because yeah. I don't, I don't like, you can tell that he's not really following her emotions either. She's so kind of like, yeah. So he doesn't know what's coming next either. Like he's like expecting this one Annie to come in and suddenly she's this sad Annie that he's never seen before. Cause neither, none of us have. Annie, are you and okay? She comes in like this. Yeah. <laughs> It's just, it's just bizarre because it's just yeah. like, I, I, it's just kind of like now I feel bad for her and I don't want to feel bad for her. It's just kind of like, it's, it's, it's yeah. insane. She does have that sympathetic aspect to her where, you know, it, it brings it into feeling like um she just has an untreated mental illness. Like it's not, she's not a caricature, really. She's not like some slasher villain you know, stalking a campground because he was a little frog boy who saw his mother get, like get killed. It's it, there's, it's so far removed from that. Um, it just really, and that helps to make it feel scary because it feels like a person, you know? Yeah. Yeah. She's a genuine, like, even everything that you hate about her earlier, like she brings up the, the like God shit and she brings up all that, the stuff against Paul Sheldon. It's just kind of like, but you still feel bad for her because like suddenly this person is down. The suddenly this person isn't on the top <laughs> anymore. So it's just kind of like, now it's just kind of like, I don't know how to feel about yeah. you anymore. And Paul Sheldon doesn't really have those same highs and lows. So it's kind of hard to keep, siding with him yeah even though you should be so <laughs> right. it's just kind of like even though kathy bates is clearly the villain it's kind of like paul sheldon is kind of like very monotone in how his whole thing goes it's just kind of like i i feel more bad for kathy bates just because she's sad one day even yeah. though paul sheldon is clearly the victim <laughs> in this whole thing yeah they play off our natural empathy i think and <laughs> Like you say, Paul Sheldon as a character is kind of plateaued emotionally because he's just pissed off. That, right. That's what like his situation hasn't changed, so neither has his emotional reaction to it. But because Annie Wilkes has a little bit more freedom in terms of her situation, it, she has that emotional range as well. And uh, like you said, it's it's scary. It's it's empathetic. It's it's just great. But she, like I said, she wanders down to the rain. Paul takes his chance to head for the kitchen and using his regained strength. We saw him doing weights with the. With the uh, <laughs> I love that really. so fucking much. Yeah, it's really funny. Um, it's also, you know, when he eventually uses it, it you're like, ah, there we go. Chekhov's typewriter. <laughs> I love that he only does really like two reps of it. He's just kind of like, like, oh yeah, now we know that guy is up on the like lifting He's on the men. <laughs> hey, it's 50 pounds minus whatever one uh, N key weighs. <laughs> and yeah, so he, he uses this to uh, maneuver himself to get a big knife to defend him with. I love when he's practicing. He's like practicing his unveiling. Really funny. But on the way back, he sees Annie's scrapbook 
open to several articles clipped out about Paul's disappearance, as well as several about Annie's death. Or, no, Annie's past, excuse me. (laughs) Not her death yet. The students ahead of her, the student ahead of her at the nursing school, quote unquote, fell to her death. Several people under her care died mysteriously while in comas, and eventually she was being tried for the deaths of several infants, um, but the prosecution failed due to lack of evidence. And you're just like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, this lady, it's such a side of her that we haven't seen, even though she uh, has been treating Paul Sheldon this way. You're, you can sort of, like, treat it as a one-off because you're like, oh, she's obsessed with him. Like, this is why she's acting this way. But all of a sudden, her past gets fleshed out in a really terrifying way. Right. There's a party that still trusts her. Like, it's just kind of like, okay, but it wouldn't be this way if Paul Sheldon, if she wasn't Paul Sheldon's, like, number one fan. Right. She, like, <laughs> you're, you're never like, is she really going to kill him? Now, you're like, oh, my God, maybe she's really going to kill him. Also, she's a Nixon voter. She's been like this for a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, he heads back to bed, though, as Annie comes back. And one thing I love about this movie is how they really put you in the character's shoes by doing these extreme close-ups on him so that you can, like, see his eyes darting around and where he's looking. And then, bam, extreme close-up on the knob. And, like, I've been in those shoes when I was trying to play Game Boy under the covers and your parents (laughs) walk past and they stop outside the door just the way Annie did. And like Paul, you can finally breathe when they move past and shut the door to their room. And he even smugly says, see you tomorrow. (laughs) Really funny. But he wakes up to find her looming over him in the middle of the night, and she promptly drugs him. She stabs him with a needle and and injects him. Really scary, very shocking. And when he wakes up, she tells him that she knows that he's been out of his room and that she realized he just needs a little more time to get to love her, you know, (laughs) truly deluded at this point. And so in order to prevent him from running away, she breaks his ankles with the sledgehammer. This is the hobbling scene that we were talking about. It's so hard to watch. It's so even you saying that made me flinch. Like I can't, (laughs) I I've never looked at it while it was happening. I always look away. (laughs) Well, get ready to hear about it because (laughs) it's so drawn out and deliberate as she like explains the history of what she's doing and setting things up. And then you see it. There's none of the usual camera trickery where they cut at the last second. She slams into it and the foot like goes floppy. It's truly, truly horrific. Like you said, the fake legs were made of gelatin with these wire armatures in the prosthetic ankles so that after Annie hits them with the sledgehammer, they uh, will, they would bend as they wanted it to. And I mean, God, it's just, it's really grotesque. It really is. I understand why you haven't watched it. It is. I don't look at it. It's like, I've, it's uh, bringing back a different movie, The Green Room. It's like The Green Room. I've never looked at any of that shit happening. I've looked away and then I've just acknowledged that it happened. Oh, man. (laughs) Check out the Green Room episode of Best Little Horror House in Philly, (laughs) starring George and Joe Crowell. But yeah, Green Room's great. I agree. It has sort of that same uh, feeling when, like, when he's chopping at him through the wall and every or through the door. I mean, good grief. Ew. But w- one thing I also really like about this movie is that she does it to the other one too. But this time they don't make you watch. Now it's already <laughs> in your head. 
you already know what's happening. And so they they don't show the second one. I think that's a really impressive level of restraint that not every movie would have. Right. And I think it is part of Rob Reiner not being an, a natural thriller person. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like, I already showed that. So now it's just kind of like you you need to imagine the rest yeah. of it. It's kind of like he's he's normally like this comedy, like happy-go-lucky person. And now he's just kind of like, I don't want to do that twice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Annie Wilkes is out there being like, as you wish. (laughs) But James Caan is there in agony and she just says, God, I love you. Oh, man. Um, My goodness gracious. It's so powerful. What a powerful moment. It's really terrifying. I mean, the seriousness with which she says it, the seriousness with which she she says it. He's so uh, good at that, and he's so good at just being in agony. Like mm-hmm. his his whole thing, I, his acting style of being in agony is just fucking amazing to me because I believe. It. Yeah, absolutely, and this is the biggest change, probably. Like we said, is that in the original novel, uh, Annie cuts off one of his feet with an axe, and Goldman loved that scene. I was wrong earlier. Sorry, everyone. Don't yell at me on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> Goldman loved the original scene and wanted it to be included. But like you said, yes, Reiner insisted that it be changed so that she only breaks his ankles. Goldman did eventually, this is why I was wrong. Goldman eventually felt that it was the correct decision because the visual depiction of the amputation um, would cause the audience to hate Annie instead of sympathizing with her madness. He felt it was a, a bridge too far to really show her cutting off his foot. So. I guess that's true. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess I could see that her, her just kind of like hobbling him kind of like made me feel like she was just kind of like, even though I, I was clear that she was insane at this yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, this is a woman that's just kind of like, I don't know what to do anymore. But if she had <laughs> cut off his legs, I'd be like, okay, now like you've gone too far. Yeah. It also, I mean, <laughs> it's still a little over the top to, to do this, but that is even still a whole nother level up to be like, all right, taking out the ax. Here we go. Oh no. I've hobbled so many people in my house. <laughs> Who hasn't? Am I right? <laughs> A hobble a day keeps the doctor away, they say. (laughs) The only way to make people stay, really. I don't know what else to do. (laughs) (laughs) So we get a a break from this. Buster sees Annie going into town, and he's struck with a realization of where he had heard the line from the Misery book that he'd been reading. Uh, He decided to read up on Paul Sheldon since he he thinks that something is funky, smells fishy in Denmark, and... He's reading all these misery books, and when he sees Annie, he remembers that Annie quoted the Paul Sheldon line of, there is a a power higher than man, and I will be judged by him, uh, while she was on the stand during her trial for murdering babies. (laughs) So, you know, that's the kind of thing that sticks with you, I imagine. (laughs) (laughs) He checks on the general store that she just left from and finds out that she's been buying an excess amount of paper, which is suspicious, to say the least. Uh, And so (laughs) he goes to check her out. Annie drugs Paul and shoves him in the basement just in time, but smartly covers for the paper by playing on sort of that sympathy that you feel for people who have that delusion of like, I I sometimes feel bad for people who are so morally superior. And I think that that is what they're, they're playing on here is, you know, she's like, oh, God told me I would be his replacement. And, and he told me that I would continue the Paul Sheldon legacy. And 
he kind of accepts that because he's like, well, she is a little off and, you know, maybe that is really what she thinks. She She's utilizing that and the way that people perceive her um, to her advantage in a way that I, I think is really great and impressive in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. He looks around while she gets him Coco. Here's my question to you. Do you think that Coco was poisoned? Because I do. Uh, see, I did too. Because she, she she seems so intense when he like doesn't drink it and is about to leave. Yeah, she seems so bummed out that he doesn't drink it that I I did think it was poisoned as well. I, because yeah. like she she does bring that fun. Like she's like. Oh, you don't want to drink it? It's just kind of like, okay, but why do you want to drink it so bad? Because you want him back gone as well. It's just kind of like... It's it's suspicious. I agree with you. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because I think at this point, she's too far gone and isn't really thinking about the fact that if she killed him with this cocoa, people will look for the sheriff of the town. And the last... We know, she doesn't know this. But we know that literally the last thing he did was ask about her. So, you know, the pieces are all there for her downfall to happen, whether Paul um, makes it out or not. But while he's wandering around, he's on his way out, or he actually is out. He's outside. And Paul knocks over the barbecue downstairs, and the noise attracts the sheriff back in. And he finds he finds Paul Sheldon down there, and he's looking at him down the stairs, and Annie shoots him in the back. Coward's oh my God, this move. bums me out so fucking bad because like I just it's like the shining all over again where the guy comes to be the hero and just gets shot <laughs> immediately. I just want I wanted him to be the hero so fucking bad that this hurt. Yeah, it's interesting because it does feel like they're building towards him being the hero of this, but you're also like, well, Paul kind of has to get himself out of the situation. It, it, it's tragic, but it kind of feels like this is the only way that it could have played out in the narrative. But you, I mean, he's just so great in that role that it's devastating every time. <laughs> and she, yeah, so she shoots Buster with the shotgun. And she tells Paul that she put two bullets in her gun, one for each of them. That's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the original idea for the novel, this is not actually how it works out, but Annie was going to kill Paul Sheldon by feeding him to Misery the Pig and then take his skin to bind the book that he had written. <laughs> why did they change that? That's yeah, crazy. I don't know. I don't know why they changed that. <laughs> The title would have been the Annie Wilkes first edition, which is a really good title, I will say. Um, but Paul, he's a fast thinker, and he says that he loves her too, and he agrees that they both need to die, but on the condition that he has to finish the novel first in order to, quote, give misery back to the world. And she falls for it, hook, line, and sinker. She goes away. He conceals a can of lighter fluid in his butt, and she puts him back in the wheelchair, carries him up. And when the manuscript is done, Paul asks for, well, he says he needs three things. And there's kind of this interesting, like, cat and mouse moment there where it looks like she's waiting for him to lie to her about it, or he, uh, like, tests her, like, knowledge of it. But She's like, what do you need? And he says, oh, you don't know. And of course, she does know. He needs the cigarette, the bottle of Dom P, and a glass uh, champagne flute for it. But the one difference this time is he needs two glasses for the champagne, which, <laughs> God, I mean, in those moments when you feel bad for her, which I think this is one of them, it really, seeing him sort of use these emotions and her delusions, it feels 
kind of gross, you know? <laughs> like she when she comes back and asks if she did good, like you just see how bad she wants the approval that she has this right. desperation to be loved by him. It's really unfortunate. I think that it is sad. It's rough. And also, I guess I'd ask you, like do you actually perceive Paul Sheldon as a fast thinker? Because, like, to me, it was funny that he would come up with that because he seemed like a like a person that would have to, like, take time and, like, think through things. So it was funny to me that he could think of these things on the spot, I guess. Because it was kind of like, I felt like he could be that person that was like, I have no idea what to do in this situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe. I think, I, to me, I felt like he's kind of a quick thinker just because he was always able to get back into the room in time. And I guess. Yeah. But so, I mean, certainly there's an element of that, like mulling it over. I mean, he's there for a long time while he's working on this book. So it definitely feels like he's taking his sweet time to hatch this plan and uh, get back, get back his strength. I, I don't know. It, it It is a little funny, but, uh, you know, it works for me. I, I don't think it that works, it feels too out of character. It's just funny to me to think because he's just I, I think it's just because it's James Caan in general, because yeah. like the way he talks. It's just kind of like oh he's like ah, I love you too. It's funny to think that he's got anything, anything going on like speedily in his head. That's just kind of like I gotta do this or I gotta do this. I just I think of James Caan as someone that's like I got like I'm gonna go to here. Yeah, he, he does I'm say it go. with a question mark at the end. He's like, uh, I love you too. Uh, we need to do this. Yeah. <laughs> so um, and so I guess it's fun though because I don't really. I don't really believe he has a plan at that point. Mm. So like, to me, anything could happen. Sure. I, I, I don't feel like anyone's winning at that point. I sure. Guess. They're both flying by the seat of their pants. Um, I, I think that's great. Yeah. I mean, Hey, I'm convinced you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, you're a slow thinker. Sorry, pal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if only you were Kevin Klein, that man has a fast break. Yep, exactly. She comes back. She asks if she did good. And, he lights the manuscript on fire and it's just so slick. He like taunts her for a little bit and then lights the match with his thumb. Oh God, it breaks my heart. It's, I'm in, I'm like, damn, <laughs> you look fucking cool right now, Paul. <laughs> Interestingly, in the book, Paul just pretends to burn Misery's return and then publishes it. That's the book at the end that, uh, that does get published and is successful. But Reiner suspected that King, even on a subliminal level, feared what would happen to him if he didn't supply his readers, his constant readers, with the kinds of books that they expect from him. And so Reiner really wanted to kind of affirm Paul's desire to move on to other things, keep that characterization going, and and this willingness to kill Misery a second time. I'm curious which you feel works better. Do you like it as him sort of accepting this part of his past and and the, his uh, his work, or do you like that he moves forward? I, I like that he moves forward. I mean, I could see it both ways, but it's just, I, I mean, once, once I came to terms with him having a plan, I guess I was rooting for James Conn again, <laughs> but like at the point I, at that point where what, right before this, I literally, every time I watch it, I've seen this movie a million times. I know, but like, <laughs> I literally don't know who's going to win. So it's just kind of like, at that point, I'm just kind of like, it could be anyone's game. But then like, I like that he pulls ahead and then it's just kind of like, this is how it's going to yeah, be. Yeah, they're, they're coming on the finish line here. And again, you sort of get that same feeling that you get in the opening sequence where it does feel like things are coming to a head and there's, there's uh, uh, an exhilaration that's coming with it. Annie rushes to save the the manuscript. She's very upset about this. 
hand. <laughs> Paul just lifts up that 50-pound typewriter and slams it across her head, kicking off this great scuffle. Buddy, he's been training for that. We saw yeah. the scene. Training for this very moment. He even got a training montage. Um <laughs> <laughs> and I do laugh that she's finally crossed the threshold for where swearing is appropriate for her. <laughs> and she calls him a lying <laughs> cocksucker. <laughs> this is the point where Jesus isn't listening yeah. anymore. <laughs> Jesus is in the background going, yeah, fucking get his ass, Annie. <laughs> but Paul stuffs her mouth full of the burned novel. <laughs> In retaliation, oh which I also laugh about. But he does take a gunshot wound to the shoulder from Annie's revolver, which she, like we said, did load, but she misses with the second one. So the gun is out of play. I like that they let us know exactly how many bullets were in there. Right. Paul grabs his legs with his arm. Like he literally physically grabs them and swings them to trip Annie, which is also kind of funny. This whole thing kind of <laughs> has an element of slapstick to it. It's it's a it's a weird but fun fight scene. It is so fucking intense, but yeah, so fucking funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she trips and she falls and she slams her head on the typewriter and Paul crawls out of the room but Annie ain't done <laughs> she's attacking him again but finally he grabs a metal pig shaped doorstop and he bashes her in the face with it a few times and she finally dies collapsing on top of him until he's finally able to free himself of this metaphorical weight by doing it literally they have actualized <laughs> the metaphor <laughs> Misery has killed Annie. (laughs) (laughs) You did it, Goldman. You wrote the shit out of it. (laughs) Cut to a year and a half later. Paul now has a cane, as uh, John Mulaney says, to demonstrate that time has passed. (laughs) (laughs) And he meets his agent, Marcia, in a restaurant in New York City. And the two discuss his first post-misery novel, and Marcia tells him about the positive early buzz. But Paul kind of replies that uh, he wrote the book for himself as a way for him to help deal with the horrors of his captivity. And Marcia says, hey, why don't we capitalize on your trauma and write a nonfiction book? <laughs> and Paul um, declines, we'll say. <laughs> what a fucked up thing to ask him to do. In a restaurant, yeah. <laughs> um that is it's like a breakup where you take him there to ask so that he can't freak out like <laughs> listen paul i have something to ask you <laughs> can i capitalize on your <laughs> pretty please <laughs> she's like i would be drummed out of the agents union uh anyway uh suddenly he sees annie approaching him again but he's all he also like is kind of like steely determined in this moment he doesn't really react to her and we see that it is in fact only a hallucination he seems to have accepted what's happened to him and understands like he's moving past it he sees it but he knows it's a hallucination it's actually his waitress uh, who approaches and she says that she's his number one fan and i mean man just what a what a way to cap it off paul meekly replies that that's very sweet of you and finally the song i'll be seeing you as performed by liberace which she loved uh, annie wilkes loved liberace uh the song plays over the credits it's a perfect encapsulation of the way that this trauma has been inflicted on paul and it'll never really leave him he will be seeing her in everything that he does from that moment on i think it's really a spectacular ending it really is 
And like, I, I like the ending too, because like, I, I think it's kind of a Stephen King cocky kind of thing too, because he has another woman come in and be like, I'm your number one fan. So that's two people that know who James Patterson is without seeing a picture on Twitter. So, <laughs> even though I know Stephen King isn't on the same level as James Patterson, but it's just, it's just funny to me to think that like all these women are coming through. They're just kind of like, I know exactly who you are. Like, I don't, I don't, I think I might recognize Stephen King on like site, but it's just kind of like, cause there's not very many authors yeah. where I'd be also, like, that's that. <laughs> Stephen King's also in a bunch of movies. So that would definitely. Exactly. Help. Yeah. Um, I think that maybe it's because if you look at the back of his book, his friggin' portrait is huge. It's, he, there's no text on the back. It's just a picture of him. So <laughs> he's like, here I am ladies <laughs> stuff away. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Look, Hey, not to, not to victim blame here, but <laughs> I don't know. At this point, I think Misery was kind of self-inflicted on all of Paul Sheldon because of what Stephen King did. (laughs) (laughs) Kelly, we've now reached the point where we sum up why this is not just a great horror movie, but the best horror movie ever made. And I mean, we've been raving about it this whole time, but I'll let you kick us off and, and start off summarizing. So to me, I love it so much just because it, like like we talked about before, it's it's a very small set, but it's only two characters, basically the whole movie, but you don't really notice those two characters. So they're pretty much driving this whole force through. And on a personal note, like um, I just, me and my my brother have like kind of brought this into our like Christmas scene. Oh, nice. So like to me this is like a personal movie because we watch this every Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> this is like I don't remember when exactly it came into play. I think it was just like a Christmas that everyone was in kind of like a bad mood. So we're just kind of <laughs> like we don't really know what movie to watch, so we're just gonna watch something with snow. Oh, yeah. And we're like, oh it's misery, so let's watch it. <laughs> And so, like, from the, from then on, we watch it every Christmas. And, like, every time I'm watching it on, like, Halloween, my brother will call me. He's like, why are you watching a Christmas movie on Halloween? So, like, <laughs> so like to me, it's very personal. Like, I love it so much. Hell, yeah. I mean, look, even without that personal touch, I also think that it's the best horror movie ever made. Because, I mean, like you said, it's not just these two actors really performing at an incredible level, but there is also that authenticity that I was talking about pretty much the entire time that we've been having this discussion, where there is so much of Stephen King himself in it, and there is that element of Rob Reiner in it, and you can sort of see into the movie a little bit. It feels very personal and like someone opening their hearts a little bit and really putting themselves on the page or on the silver screen in this case. And I just love the way that Kathy Bates and um, James Kahn are able to actualize that. And of course, Richard Farnsworth cannot leave him out. Absolutely killing the game <laughs> as Buster, as everyone calls him. Um, and, and like you said, you know, they're doing so much with so little, the fact that it is just this, this really, it's just the one set. I mean, come on. Um, and, uh, you know, you have that great action sequence at the beginning and you have this fun fight at the end. It has these two great bookend moments of action. And then it doesn't feel like it's that long in the middle, but it, it, no. you know, it is in one place and it's incredible that they're able to make it interesting the whole time. And, and, you know, like I said, it functions as an extension of Kathy Bates's character. And so even when she's not there, you feel her all around. 
in a way that helps to bring right. Yeah, you're just waiting for her to come back. Yeah. It's just like, and like you said, it's just like I I don't think I really thought of them only being two characters in one scene critically until I was getting prepared to do this podcast. It's just kind of like I love this movie so much and I watch it all the time. But it's just kind of like until I really thought about it. I never really even noticed that it was two characters in one setting yeah. because they really do a great job of just bringing it through. And just Kathy Bates goes through so many personalities that mm-hmm. you're just kind of like, there's like seven to seven to nine people in this movie. <laughs> and you're just kind of like, oh, there's only like four. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's really great. I mean, Hey, that's why we think it's the best horror movie ever made. <laughs> Kelly, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This is, I mean, I love this movie and I had such a fun time talking about it with you. Oh, this is so fun. Absolutely. Uh, is there anything that you want to plug? If, if you know, talk about, if you want more people to listen to that podcast. Oh, uh, well, I do. I do a podcast with my brother. It's called Neighbors Trash. Um, you can find it on like Spotify or wherever. Um, but it's just basically we go through flea markets and we find old things from our past. Then we talk about if it's worth buying again. Oh, hell yeah. And it's fun. He's very earnest and I like to derail it. So <laughs> it's it's very fun. <laughs> I mean, it sounds great. I actually didn't even know that you uh, did that podcast. So I will definitely be checking it out myself. <laughs> I do not promote it very much, even though I love it. <laughs> Awesome. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPH. Oh, yeah. Tell people your social, too. Oh, God. I do not remember what my Twitter is. All right. Uh, This is embarrassing. uh, Kelly, here, follow me uh, at LittleHorrorPHL and then go into the people that I'm following and find Kelly in there. I've changed I've changed my Twitter handle so many times just so people from work can't find me that I don't know what it is. So you gotta put in a little legwork, but it's worth it. Kelly's a great follow. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, find me at Little Horror PHL on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that jazz. It's also the website if you go to LittleHorrorPHL.com. But mostly I want to encourage people to sign up for the Patreon because not only do you get early and ad-free access to the episodes, so you can listen to this uh, not on the 30th when it comes <laughs> if you so were inclined. But also, you get even like bonus episodes and stuff. We are doing this great like debate room episodes called Legal Thriller. Uh, we're doing more choose your own adventure books. We're going to be doing sort of uh, director's director's cut episodes where I get to pick the the dang movie that I want to talk about. Hello. So <laughs> this is the good stuff, folks. And there's all kind. There's three different tiers. Uh, it's only a couple bucks a month, and uh, you know it really helps to keep the show going. And uh, as much as I love doing it, it you know i gotta keep the lights on so do that uh, if you're enjoying the show and if you're enjoying the show uh rate and review on itunes and uh, that's it for me uh thank you again kelly this was so much fun and everyone out there uh don't get your legs broken bye <laughs>